All right. Well, we are starting a new series called Who Do We Think We Are? Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. We call it a book, but it's actually a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And I am so excited about this series. Let me just tell you, Ephesians is probably one of my favorite letters that Paul wrote. It's a, it's a, it's phenomenal. There's just so many amazing things in it. And today we're going to be looking at chapter one. We're going to be going uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse over the next six weeks until, you know what we're going to do after that? Our Advent series. Can you believe we're already there? But um, so we're, today we're going to be looking at uh, chapter one. Um, I'm calling this talk Every Spiritual Blessing. So if you're a note taker, you can write that down. If you're not a note taker, who cares? Um, but before we jump in, let me give you a little background because I find uh, knowing the context and background of something matters, especially in a letter. Like it's important to know, you know, what was the mind state of Paul when he was writing this letter? Who was he writing it to? Why was he writing it? Like if I was writing a letter to Laura and we had just gotten into a huge fight, that would be important to know. Or if we were like celebrating our anniversary, that would give us some context on what I meant by certain things in the letter. So the background is, like I said, Ephesians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus uh, it was a really affluent, wealthy port city. It was a Roman port city in modern-day Turkey. So they were right on the water. It was tons of commerce, tons of, tons of different people group came to Ephesus. They had multiple different religions, multiple different gods. Um, one of their primary uh, exports was actually idols. It was like a city that was known for building and selling idols. Um, but it was a very, very wealthy city. This letter was written in 62 AD. So uh, it was a, a letter that was written not, not that far after Jesus was crucified. Um, and one of the interesting things about this letter is Paul wrote a number of letters. He wrote some letters to individuals. He wrote some letters to churches. This one was written to a church. And a lot of times Paul would write to these churches that he would go to, you know, spend a short time, gather some people around and say, hey, you seem like you're the most mature person. You are now the pastor. And then he'd leave. And then he would write letters to that church to be like, you guys are going crazy. And you're like, I wonder why. Paul, you stayed there for like a week. Uh, but this one was interesting because Paul stayed in Ephesus for a long time. Paul was in the, the, the church in Ephesus for a few years, actually. You can read about his time in Ephesus, which actually I encourage you to do. If you have time over the next week, read Acts 19 through 21. And it'll give you kind of a backdrop of what it was like for Paul in the city of Ephesus. A few things that I find interesting about Paul's time in Ephesus was one of the things is he was, he was out preaching the gospel, spreading the good news of Jesus. And essentially his message to the city of Ephesus was Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And this caused 
crazy civil and political like unrest because of him saying, I'm not bowing down to Caesar. I only bow my knee to Jesus. Another thing that was interesting is it tells us that Paul performed many unusual miracles, which I've always wondered, like, what's an unusual miracle? <laughs> like, those old regular miracles, like, those are not, those are normal, but these were unusual miracles. It gets into it a little bit about what those are. I won't spoil all of them for you, but I love that, that there was unusual miracles happening. Uh, but he was, he was preaching the gospel. So many people, this church was growing so fast, and so many people were coming to know Jesus, um, rejecting Caesar as Lord, rejecting the idols that they worshiped, and coming to Jesus, that there was so much upheaval that was happening in the city to the point where, like, they ran him out of the place. They wanted to kill him. They were like, you are causing too much craziness here in our city. One of the things that was happening is there was, uh, there was economic unrest. Him preaching the gospel was causing this economic craziness that was happening. And the reason why was because one of their main exports was idols. And because people were throwing away their idols and not buying more idols, the idol makers were like, this is bad news, man. <laughs> like, you're ruining our idol shops. Um, so I, th I thought that was interesting. But uh, Paul was writing this from jail. This is one of his prison letters. Uh, and you wouldn't ever know it. When you, were, when you read the letter, you couldn't tell that Paul was, like, frustrated or Paul was, you know, down and out. Like, he seems pretty cheery. And let me just say, this really challenged me, that Paul had such a positive attitude. Because let me just tell you, this past few months has been difficult. There's been a lot of hard things that have been going on. And if I was to write you a letter, you would know that I was going through some difficult times. But Paul keeps this really positive, hopeful attitude. In fact, much of the first chapter, which we're going to be reading today, is worship. Much of it is worship, which I think is just awesome. But over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about this. And let me just say this before we jump in. The three major themes of the book of Ephesians are that Christ has united everything back to himself. That Christ has united all back to himself. That's number one. Number two is that all nations and all people groups, every race, every tribe, every nation has been unified, not just to Jesus, but to one another within the church. This is the call that Paul gives in this, this letter is that if you are united with Jesus, you need to be united with all people here in the body of Christ. And then three, the last theme is that if we are united with Christ and united with one another, it should affect the way we behave and the way we live. So those are the main themes of Paul, and we're going to kind of set the foundation this morning. And so before we do, let's pray. So Holy Spirit, I thank you for being here. Lord, I thank you that you are building this community, and I pray that you would make this a safe place for people, that all people would be able to come together, that we wouldn't be 
people who show preference, but this would be a people who open arm, welcome one another. And Lord, we, we, do, we also just pray, oh, for this confusing time in Israel-Palestine. I don't even have words. Lord, we just pray for your mercy and your grace and your judgment. We pray for protection over all the people there. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So uh, we're going to be reading a big chunk today. Um, but you can write this down if you do take notes. We are going to be looking at this, pro- uh, this progression of love to forgiveness, to inheritance. And this progression is basically my whole talk. Love, forgiveness, uh, inheritance. Um, So think about those things as we're going through this. So we're going to read a big chunk here. Bear with me. There's Bibles. It's also going to be on the, the screen. I promise I didn't trick you and put something else weird in there. But if you don't trust me, grab a Bible. Um, all right. We're starting verse 3. It says, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it starts with worship. Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption and sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the, ones he, in, in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All right. There's a lot to unpack there, and we're basically going to go kind of verse by verse unpacking this. And one of the interesting things about this, the reason I read that whole chunk is because in the original Greek, that was one sentence. That is the longest sentence in the Bible. It's this huge run-on sentence that Paul writes with no punctuation, um, and it's essentially one continuous thought. And I thought breaking it down kind of does it a disservice because it was supposed to be one long sentence. And I think there's a lot of significance to that. Um, And there's a lot of really interesting things. A lot of theology within the church comes uh, out of this text. 
And a lot of people's, like, a lot of, like, really, really big church theology and disagreements come out of this text as well. One of the things that you might see is this text is a text that many Calvinists will use to support their idea of predestination. If you're, if you're not familiar with that, predestination essentially means that God chooses who is saved and who is not saved. That Calvinists would say that God chooses who is saved and who is not saved. Um, did you notice how many times it said predestined and you were chosen? And, um, and just for a little church history, Calvinists believe, among many other things, five other things, Calvinists believe uh, that God chooses who will be saved and not be saved, and they were very adamant. This was, the Calvinists would believe this, and then there's another group called the Arminians, and the Arminians said, no, that's not true. We have free will. God doesn't choose who's saved and who's not saved. We choose whether or not we want to follow him or not, and so you guys are wrong, and this was more than just like, a, huh, that's interesting. We both, we disagree. This was like violent, many splits, like battles were fought over this argument of are we predestined or do we have free will? Now, I have an opinion on this. And I will just say, uh, I always have enjoyed what Charles Spurgeon said about this, though. Even though I have a really, I have an opinion on this. Charles Spurgeon, when asked, you know, how do you reconcile predestination and free will? He said, I never find the need to reconcile friends. And for the sake of time, what he was essentially saying is they both seem to have biblical validity, and it's a mystery. I don't know. I don't know. And I think he had his lean. I think I have my lean. But for the sake of time, I will say that our church can agree to disagree on this a bit. You may think, I think every God's perfect will happens and, you know, who is saved is all built on who God says is saved. And you, you might say, no, I think we, you know, completely have free will and we get to decide what we do. And I will say I probably lean more towards that side, um, but that's okay. We can, we can disagree. Um, but let's, just, let's jump in and start unpacking this because, honestly, I don't think that's what the point of this text is, even though many people use this text to, to, to define those things. So let's start with verse 3. Uh, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. That phrase jumps out. Every spiritual blessing. And it might feel kind of nebulous, like what does that even mean? What is every spiritual blessing? And I have, to, I have to be honest. For years, I would read this and be like, I don't know what that means. And sounds like good things, though, right? So I'm glad I have every spiritual blessing. Um, but if you ever come to a place in Scripture where you don't know what it means, and you're like, what is every spiritual blessing? Or what does this phrase mean? Um, there's a lot of things that you can do. But like we said at the beginning, it's really important to look at context. And the first thing that you should do is look at the stuff that surrounds it. 
that doesn't always answer the question, but oftentimes it does, and I think it does in this. If you keep reading in this text, I think he starts to answer it. Verse 4 and 5 Paul says this, he says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in, according with, uh, in accordance with his pleasure and will. So the beginning point, the main thing of every spiritual blessing is this, is that you have been loved and accepted and adopted in. Every spiritual blessing starts with you are loved and accepted and adopted into family. That's what this is saying. That Paul is saying you have every spiritual blessing which is being loved and accepted and adopted in. You are part of the family. And as a pastor, I have had the chance to sit with so many people over the years who just have just struggled in life. And let me just say, this issue is like 90% of what people struggle with, including myself, of this issue of a feeling like, am I loved? Like, am I really loved? Am I really accepted for who I am? And do I belong? And I think Paul is saying here, yes, emphatically, yes, you are loved. Yes, you are accepted. Yes, you do belong. You have been accepted and adopted into the family. And the good news, the gospel, the good news is that you, you have already been accepted and adopted in. And you didn't do anything to deserve it. It's not a new thing that happened. This text says, when were you loved? When were you accepted? When were you adopted? Before the world was made. God loved you with an undying, everlasting love before you were even made. It says, before the foundation of the world, he loves you. This is... So important. No one here did something yesterday that made God say, oh, you know what? I love that guy. No one here did something recently where God said, that was enough. Now you're accepted in. Or you did the right thing. You said the right prayer. You, you behaved yourself in the right way. Now you're family. It says before the foundation of the world you were loved, you were accepted, you were family. That is so important. He loves you, accepts you, and adopts you. This is what it means to receive every spiritual blessing. This is good news, amen? Before you existed, you were loved. It's settled. It's settled. And you may not feel like it, but let me just say, you would be sincerely wrong. You are. And this is such good news. And I believe it's so important and foundational for us to understand this. Because so much of what we are taught in Western Christianity begins with the point that you are flawed. You are broken. You are messed up. Oh, and God, he does not like you. Right? Oh, and Jesus had to come and do something so that he would like you. 
That's so much of the message that is, that is taught. But the deepest fundamental truth of who you are is that you are loved. And you are accepted. And you are adopted in. By the way, this is the foundation of all things. This is the foundation of all things. The way we think of this church, the way we think of the world, the way we think of people, the way you think of you. Sometimes, if you're like me, you can get like, yeah, God loves those people. He loves everyone, but I got to earn it. Not me. I know he loves you, but I'm kind of messed up. The deep work of the church. Listen. The deep work of Restoration Heights Church is this. We need to partner with the Spirit to wake people to the fact that they are loved and accepted and adopted in. Amen? This is the deep work of what God is calling us to do, is wake people to the fact that they are loved by a God who loves them with everlasting, undying love. And the fact that this happened before the creation of the world matters a lot. Why? Because it tells us, listen, this is, this is maybe going to ruffle some feathers, but let me tell you this. We didn't need the cross in order for God to love you. You didn't need the cross in order for God to accept you or adopt you in. It happened before the foundation of the world. Hear me. We do need forgiving. We do need redeeming. I believe those things. It says in verse 7, if we keep on reading, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. But the gospel is not that we needed to be forgiven first so that we're loved. That the order is so important, guys. The progression matters. Nothing had to happen in order for God to love and accept and adopt you. That's really important. Anything else, the, the, saying that God needed the cross to love you is a perversion of the gospel. God loves you, accepts you, and adopts you. And that does not mean we don't need redemption and forgiveness, but you are loved. Start there. You are loved. Before the foundation of the world, you are loved. He loves you. He accepts you. He adopts you. And because of those things, because of his love, because of his acceptance, because you are family, he forgives you. In other words, forgiveness is an expression of family. Forgiveness is an expression of family. My prayer is that Restoration Heights Church would be a family of dirty forgivers. That we would forgive one another because we have been forgiven. That we would be a family. Family forgives. Now listen, that does not mean that there's always agreement. That does not mean that there's always, you know, listen, forgiveness, family, all of those things does not mean we need to agree or accept bad behavior. 
Just because we are loved and accepted doesn't mean we don't need forgiveness, doesn't mean that we don't need to be redeemed, that we don't need to be sanctified, that we don't need to be changed. It doesn't mean the fact that you're accepted and doesn't mean that everything is fine. True love doesn't just say everything is okay, what you do doesn't matter. It doesn't. True love could and should and ultimately does challenge As a father, like, Jesus talks about this thing that says, like, you guys are lousy fathers, but even lousy fathers, like, if their kid asks for bread, they're not going to give them a snake, right? He says, like, listen, even bad fathers know how to, like, at least kind of care for a kid. And as as a father, I am not okay with Olive harming other people. I'm not okay with Olive hurting people, like, calling people idiotic beasts. I'm not okay with it. I'm not okay with her putting her hands on other people. I'm not okay with her, you know, saying things that are, you know, inappropriate to other people. And if I was okay with that, I want to be a good dad. A good dad says you're loved, you're accepted, and you're in your family. Hey, we need to talk about this. We need to deal with this. So, God loves, accepts, and adopts, but he also forgives and shows mercy and cancels our debts. This is good news. And this, this is all heading somewhere. And in verse 11, it tells us where, that it's heading somewhere. If we read it, it says, In him we were, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It's going somewhere. There's a purpose to it. There's a purpose to all of this. And the purpose and where it's heading to is inheritance. We are loved, we are forgiven, and we have an inheritance. Verse 14 tells us we have an inheritance. And by the way, this makes sense, right? Because if God is adopting us into family and he's a good, rich, loving God, then there's inheritance that he has for us. And it's even more, it's interesting, it's even more uh, than just adoption that we we are um, being invited into. If you read through it, you see all over this language of in him. Like we are in him. And this, this, this language of unity, with Christ and this union with him in the theological uh, circles they call this union the union with Christ that we have and this is a big deal this is a positional truth that Paul is saying you are now in Christ you are one with Christ and what this is saying and what this means is Paul is saying there's this mystery mysteriously whatever God has done in and with and for Christ, he is now done in and with and for you. Whatever has been laid onto Christ, all the good blessings, all the wonderful things that God has poured out in and through Christ is for you. This is the gospel too. This is part of the gospel. 
It means that Jesus is more than just a symbol for us to be encouraged by. Jesus is so much more than just something we can look to and be like, that's encouraging. It means there's something supernatural and and mysterious that happens that whatever is bestowed on Jesus is now bestowed on you. And this is good news. You have been, just like Jesus was alive and crucified and raised from the dead, you have been made alive. You have died and you have been raised. What does that mean? And why is this a big deal? Because it's a point of hope. Because it's a point of hope. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 5.20. Paul says this. He says, if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That Jesus rising from the dead is just the beginning, Paul is saying. That if it was true for Jesus, it's true for you. He's the first fruit. Jesus is the first that will all, that, of all that will be made new and resurrected. Revelation says, behold, behold, I am making all things new. Not just some of the things. Not just the predestined things. He's saying, I am making all things new. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the first fruit of all being resurrected, of all being made new and beautiful. The gospel says this, you may be feeling sick, you may be feeling down, you may be feeling stuck, you may be feeling dead inside, you may be experiencing uh, poverty or racism or homophobia, you may be experiencing, you may be looking at the world and saying, why does it look like this? You may be having relational breakdown, you may be having all kinds of things, but God says that I am making all things new. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you can trust me that I will make this new. And it might not happen today. It might not happen tomorrow. But on the other side of the eternity, you can bet that all will be made new. This is a point of hope for us. Because we are in Jesus. If Jesus was raised, you will be raised. If Jesus was made new, you will be made new. One day we'll get to see it in its fullness, but it is already at work today. That's why we are called Restoration Heights Church, because we want to partner with that, that restoration of all things. Right? We're not the one day of restoration. We're the today of restoration. It is already at work. And so what is the inheritance? It's being made one with Jesus. It's being resurrected with Jesus. It's receiving all that Jesus has. In Romans 8, I love this. Paul says this. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to what? Your mortal bodies. That means your physical bodies, your physical needs, not just our spirit playing harp up in heaven, but your mortal bodies will experience being made new, raised from the dead. This is good news because of the spirit who lives in you. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is already work at work in you. 
You may be saying, this sounds great, but how do I know this is true? (laughs) How do I know that one day I'll receive this inheritance? Sounds nice. How many of you bought a house? One thing that you need to do if you buy a house is you put down earnest money, right? You know what earnest money is? It's where you say, all right, I'm good for it. I'm going to give you like $3,000 so no one else can buy this house. Here's some earnest money. There's been earnest money that's already been put down. There's already a down payment that we can look to and say, this is how I know I'll receive the inheritance. And it tells us. It tells us in 13 and 14, it says, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. How do we know that we're going to receive the inheritance? Because we have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is guaranteeing that we will receive all being made new. We know it's true because we have the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit that helps you. The Bible says that you cannot even testify that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And if you are able to say, I think Jesus is Lord, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in you. The Spirit that comforts us when we need comfort. The Holy Spirit that somehow gives us a peace that transcends understanding. I was just talking to someone this morning. The Holy Spirit that when all is falling down and we're going through seasons and we still have like a joy somehow. The Holy Spirit that convicts us when we do something wrong. The Holy Spirit that says, do not talk to that person like that. Don't treat your your wife like that. Don't talk to your kid like that. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that guides us, the Holy Spirit that fills us up, that gives us courage, that gives us hope, that gives us peace, the Holy Spirit that that I've shared with you, that I received, that, that feels like a hug in the middle of the darkness. And we are headed to a future where we don't just have a taste of it. We are headed to a future where we don't just get a little bit of the Holy Spirit, but we receive the full spiritual blessing of being face-to-face with Jesus, where the Bible tells us that there is no more fear. There are no more dividing walls of hostility. Where there's no more cancer No more racism. No more hunger and poverty. No more war. No more just confusion of why does this happen? All will be made new. And we will be able to receive the fullness, not just a little bit. Because Jesus has given us every spiritual blessing. And so I want to ask you right now, can you put up that, that last slide? This, this progression of that you have been loved, you have been forgiven, and you have received an inheritance, where are you 
in this progression today. Do you know that you are loved and accepted in? Did you know that? Maybe that's where, what God really needs you to hear this morning. He says, I love you with an infinite love. And do you know that you can receive forgiveness? If you're like me, I just know that there are things where I'm like, even when I'm trying to do good, I don't. And do you know that there's forgiveness? Have you received that? Have you received the redemption that God says, I have purchased you out of slavery. I've redeemed you. Do you know that? Have you accepted that? And have you received, have you been beginning to receive and understand that you're receiving an inheritance because you have a really good 